0: A a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kinda like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
1: The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. The History of the Great War Premium, episode number 20. This is our fourth episode in our series on the military doctrine of the various armies of Europe during the war. And as we have done with the French and the Germans in previous episodes, it is time for the British. For this discussion, instead of focusing on just one area, like we did with the French and their pre-war evolution, and the Germans and their changes to defense and offense in 1917 and 1918 respectively, we are doing a pretty broad overview for the British. The British came into the war in an interesting spot due to their reliance on a professional army before the war. The small numbers in this army would find themselves essentially annihilated by the end of 1914, and the British found themselves back at square one and were forced to build up their army from almost nothing. Due to this and other reasons, the British would lag behind the Germans and the French in terms of doctrine for most of the war. However, by the final year, they would take their position as the most advanced army in Europe. There were still problems in how they were doing things in late 1918, especially around consistency, but all the important tactical concepts were present, and they had formations that were adept at using them, with big props going out to the Canadians and Australians for this last fact. Also, as a small programming note, instead of just having a wrap-up and conclusion episode next month, it will be a combo with some what I find to be interesting information about the Austro-Hungarian army and how it came to its form in 1914. With all that in mind, let's jump into the situation before the war for the British. Much like the other armies of Europe before the war, the conversations that the British army was focused on was the conversations between which was most important, firepower or mass, We covered this conversation a lot during our Cavalry-focused Patreon episodes from last year, so I won't go too deep into the conversation. But in the 1902 infantry training manual, it had a heavy emphasis on firepower and using it as the primary way to take enemy positions. It called for a strong firing line to be set up to cover any advances, which should not be done over open ground. Then units would move forward under the cover of this fire while they provided fire support, which would result in something like a leapfrog action as the units worked their way over each other. These were all good ideas, but they greatly overestimated the effect that rifle fire would have on the enemy during the next war. There was a revision to more mass tactics by the time of the 1909 regulations, which we discussed in some detail in those cavalry episodes. On the defensive side of the regulations, the British were actually superior to that of the French and the Germans. The regulation stated that only half the men should occupy the defensive firing line, with the other half always kept as a local reserve in positions where they could stage aggressive counterattacks whenever the opportunity presented itself. And at the basic level, that looks a lot like what the Germans would end up on uh, in 1917. Another area of note for the army before the war was decision-making, which was overall very centralized. Commanders would issue highly detailed orders, and they would be followed. Simple as that. This had been the tradition of the British Army for a very long time. There wasn't a push to change this and give junior officers greater autonomy, a movement that was spearheaded by General Roberts when he was leading the British Army in the early 1900s. In the 1902 Infantry Training Manual, he would write in the preface that, quote, "...success in war cannot be expected unless all ranks have been trained in peace to use their wits." End quote. While this was good in the theory, it would not take root in the British Army before the war. In the five years before the war, the move back to centralization would be strong, negating most of the gains of the previous decade. Another item to touch on here is that, at least adjacent to autonomy probably, is the education of officers. All across Europe, most of the armies did not necessarily want their soldiers to study military theory and military history too much, and they did not place any value on such practice. The British even actively discouraged it, while in other armies it was only encouraged for the general staff and officers at the staff college. This meant that there was not a ton of institutional military knowledge. On the British side, this was felt even more severely due to the weakness of their general staff. They did have one before the war. However, it was not an area that attracted the top talent of the armed forces, because it lacked any real power and could not really confront higher level commanders. So while the General Staff was undervalued, they also had no team on the General Staff dedicated to gathering information and analyzing that information on both British practices and those of other armies to try and find areas to improve upon. This lack of culture of improvement and learning would slow the adaptation of the British once the war started. From a training perspective, the British were the complete opposite from their command culture. They were completely decentralized. Every unit had a different training system, and while there were regulations involved with training, they ended up being more like rough guidelines. It was up to the officers in charge for how they interpreted the regulations or if they even really used them at all. This cycle would just compound on itself over time, as officers in charge of training, of course, did not want to give up any of that power, so it was difficult to make any real changes. This would be somewhat solved during the war, but it would take some time. and only really happened because the traditional training apparatus was completely overwhelmed by the number of new soldiers that were required. Part of this training culture also prevented a good way for combat troops at the front to influence the training that was taking place back at home. This meant that in 1914, when so many lessons were learned on the battlefield, often by paying the iron price, they were not effectively communicated back to the training camps, and therefore soldiers were sent forward to the front trained in very outdated tactics. One of the critical lessons that was learned during the 1914 battles was that the British army went to war with not even remotely close to enough firepower. Before the war, the British had put a lot of emphasis on rifle drill. Their professional soldiers could shoot faster and more accurately than any other army in Europe. Even the Germans acknowledged this. They put up fire so impressive that at Mons, the German attackers believed that they were facing machine guns, when in fact it was just British infantry with their trusty lee filled rifles. The British actually had shockingly few machine guns, even on pre-war standards, with only four machine guns per battalion and none of them allocated below the battalion level. This was basically nothing compared to the Germans and French who had machine guns everywhere. Another lesson that was quickly realized was how important defenses were. While the troops started digging in almost instantly, it would still take some time for the British to adapt to any kind of reasonable defensive posture, because instead of even doing what the regulations said, which was only have half the men in the front, they were almost always overstuffing the front lines, which fell prey to German artillery. The final big lesson of 1914 was that the general staff was wholly inadequate for the task at hand. They were completely overwhelmed by the amount of information in front of them, and all the things that they needed to do and interact with. They had to both keep the war going, but also come up with different tactics and doctrine, since it was clear that the current tactics were not going to win the war. They also had to manage the massive expansion of the British Army, on a scale previously unheard of in the past. 1915 was a turning point for the British Army when it came to their tactics on the battlefield. The first attacks of the year held more in common with their pre-war doctrine, lots of fire and movement and small unit tactics, with a small amount of artillery preparation. However, after the spring battles, especially that of Auber's Ridge in May, that all began to change. The core of this change was that the British officers believed that it was impossible for the infantry to carry enough firepower to effectively attack the prepared German positions, which was not an incorrect analysis. Therefore, they began to focus more and more on artillery, mostly around masses of artillery that they would fire before the attack would go forward. Once they started down this road... It would eventually turn into a two-year odyssey, really, of trying to make the concept of the artillery conquers, the infantry occupies, work. The issue with this, and something that they could never properly solve, was that the artillery had a finite range, pretty short range in the grand scheme of the whole campaign, and the infantry were never able to move beyond it. The British knew and recognized this, causing them to make plans to always move the artillery forward, But they also made the assumption that they could make a breakthrough before the German positions could be uh, um, reinforced. And they also made the assumption that the German positions would get progressively weaker as they advanced. But they never properly accounted for the fact that their attacks would get far weaker as well. When this failure was coupled with a culture that did not tolerate uh, upwards criticism, it resulted in both disaster and a seemingly set of repetitive attacks that seemed to have learned nothing from what came before them. These disasters would continue into 1916. This meant that the army who began attacking on the Somme would look pretty much like it did at Luce in 1915, but on a much grander scale. As the attacks got larger, the authority over those attack- attacks also migrated up the chain of command. This put things like artillery, the exact planning for the new creeping barrages, and the placement and commitment of reserves at an increasingly high level. This then made it difficult to react to any- in any kind of timely manner when the situation at the front changed. Operation orders were very detailed, with specific objectives, timetables, and artillery plans. They often covered items in extreme detail, details that even the French, with their constant pull towards centralization, thought were minutiae, best handled by officers at the front. Because of these facts, the attacks of 1916 seem very rigid, very stiff, and unmoving in their goals and methods, regardless of the outcomes." There was some experimentation, but it was few and far between, and while the British did get better at their style of attacks, which can be seen on the efforts on the Somme after July 1st, they were moving at a glacier's pace. What lessons that were learned by the infantry often were not passed up the chain of command in a timely manner, which could not then make it back to the training depots, which meant replacements knew very little of the new situations at the front. The thing that saved the British in 1916 after they had made all these mistakes was not some huge innovation but rather the fact that they were starting to dip they were just starting to dip into their manpower reserves and the German army was already stretched quite
0: thin. Even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
2: Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a Ph.D. in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode where I'd like to tell you a story.
1: 1917 would begin much the same way that 1916 had, with the British still using a scaled up version of what they had done in 1915. The one big difference was that they were starting to figure out how to use tanks, which had required a good amount of experimentation. As the year progressed, their doctrine began to change as well. Small unit experimentation became far more common, which accelerated change, and the infantry was reorganized so that the platoon became the primary unit of maneuver. This was done through a reorganization of equipment so that the platoon had a wider variety of weapons and much greater firepower. There were also great success in integrating tanks with the infantry, which was on display later in the year in battles such as the attack at Cambrai. This did not mean that they had solved the issues of how to integrate tanks into their attacks, so that everything they were doing was successful. The three main efforts of the year at Arras, Messines, and Passchendaele all involved the typical massive artillery barrages, and then mostly failures. They also still had not sorted out how to continue the attack beyond the range of the artillery, which is where the Germans were moving most of their men and defenses out of, but the British were at least making some progress. We have not gotten to it yet in the main episodes, but we will certainly look at Passchendaele in much greater detail later this year, so you can look forward to that. On the defensive side of the coin, the British were also making some advances, most of which were just attempts to copy what the Germans were doing. Late in 1917, the British shifted to what they thought was the German method of elastic defense. They set up their various zones of defense and then manned them in a similar way, with the outpost zone thinly held, then the battle zone with most of the defenders, and then a reserve zone from which they could stage counterattacks. While all of this was correct, and while they got all uh, what I'm calling the hard facts correct, it was the soft facts, the details, where they fell short. Instead of giving up the outpost zone, the men were told to defend it at all costs, which was not very elastic. Then the counterattacks that were supposed to be quick and powerful were instead held back while intricate planning took place, which slowed the response enough to make them mostly worthless. All of this would come to haunt them when the Germans launched their first attacks against the British since 1914 in the spring of 1918. The British entered 1918 in an interesting spot, at least relative to other countries in the war. Morale was at a new low, after the disaster that was the Passchendaele Offensive. There was a general lack of manpower at the front, driven by a general manpower shortage, but exacerbated by the growing friction between Lloyd George and Haig. This resulted in Haig requesting 600,000 men be sent to the Western Front in early 1918, but only about 100,000 actually being sent. This meant that the British, for the first time during the war, would start 1918 with fewer men on the Western Front than they had the previous year. This friction was at least partially driven by the disagreement about how the rest of the war should be fought, and what the British should do while waiting for the Americans to arrive in force. Now, while many of these types of problems were shared by many other armies, if not in specifics at least in general, the British also had some advantages that other countries did not have. There was a general agreement among all the British leaders that at least for the moment they should take the defensive and wait for the seemingly inevitable German attack that was going to be launched by troops from the east. The British had also improved their training consistency, meaning that men were getting to the front in better shape than ever before. They had continued to improve on their mobile and mechanical doctrine. The infantry and artillery would work better with tanks in 1918 than ever before. All this meant that the British were the second most capable army in Europe in early 1918, second only to the Germans. And while in the short term, they came to this position almost by default, because the French were in shambles, the Russians were out of the war, and the Americans weren't really there yet, in the long term, they seemed destined to be the military power that could be the greatest of the war, especially if they could hold off the Germans for a few months so that the Americans could come online to take up some space. This is at least partially why the first German attacks of the spring would be aimed at the British and not the French. Before we get into all the action, though, let's dig a bit deeper into the British offensive doctrine at the beginning of the last year of the war. That's why we're here, after all. In theory and on paper, the British offensive doctrine of 1918 was just as advanced as the Germans. However, units applied the theories set forth on that paper in different ways depending on the commander. The first and most important change that was made was that the British no longer separated the fire and movement phases of the attack. They were all integrated into one effort. Second, and much like the Germans were doing, they began to construct their infantry units to maximize firepower, with the mindset that each infantry unit had to have enough firepower to suit their own needs. They shouldn't have to defend depend on the artillery. This gave them greater freedom on the battlefield because it uncoupled them from the artillery barrage. This led to the third feature, which was the push for independent small unit action, where junior officers and NCOs leading the units at the front were empowered to carry the attack forward. They were given their objectives and expected to pursue them without direction or information from their superiors. General Maxis, who at this point was the general of training of the British Army, would give the advice that, quote, When in doubt, go ahead. When uncertain, do that which will kill the most Germans. This put a lot of pressure on these young leaders, and they would be up for the task. This third bit was only possible because the assault units were provided with enough firepower in the form of weapons and explosives to make it happen, something that all the armies seemed to slowly be learning. I like to point that out because even if the, the British had decided to give more autonomy to their small units in, say, 1916, they probably would have had the same results as they had in 1916 to begin with because firepower made making decisions at the front far more possible. One of the items that separated the British from other armies revolved around how they would use technology in the last year of the war. The most popular and well-known of these technologies was the tank, obviously. But there was also a wider focus on mechanical mobility that saw the rise of things like supply tanks and other mechanical means of moving men and material around the battlefield. In late 1917, in the, last month, of the war, uh, last month of the year, there were several discussions about what the British Army should look like in the future, an important decision that would drive munitions work back on the home front. In these discussions, there were two different schools of thought. The first was based around the idea that more traditional infantry should take the priority, where the other school believed that mechanical warfare should be the emphasis. The reason that this was important was because in 1918, the British no longer had a seemingly infinite pool of manpower which they had pretty much enjoyed in 1916 and 1917. And while they were not as low on men as other countries, they still had to decide what their priorities were. At the meeting on December 5th, 1917, it was decided that for the foreseeable future, the infantry would be the priority, with Hank being given troops to bring his infantry units up to establishment before more men were used to increase the size of other arms. While this was the decision going into 1918, it would begin to change even before the year was half over. On March 19th, on March 13th, the Supreme War Council, which was a combination of representatives from all Allied nations, would release the notes on the economy of manpower by mechanical means. This memo assumed that the Allies would be on the defensive for all of 1918, and the only offensive action would be large raids, which they hoped could be launched with large number of planes and tanks to reduce the manpower costs. This would allow the armies to build up a large manpower pool for attacks beginning in 1919, with the Americans added in. Now this isn't how things would go, and 1918 would go very differently than many predicted. But it's likely that if the war had continued into 1919, it would have seen attacks that were more about tanks than infantry, a change due both to the, just the sheer number of tanks, but just the general belief that was spreading around the British army of how important new technologies were on the battlefield. As it was, the tanks that the army had were often used in very ad hoc manner throughout the last months of the year, so instead of taking their place in the sun during the attacks of 1919, the tanks would have to wait for the next war. Before they got to attack again, though, the British had to deal with the German spring offensives, which would catch them at least somewhat by surprise. Now, the British could not help but notice that the Germans were building up for something, and they knew the rough area that it might occur. But it was how it was executed that came as a shock. Instead of a lengthy artillery bombardment and an infantry attack that moved forward slowly, the Germans had a very quick bombardment, then their infantry moved forward quickly, This put strain on the British defenses that they were ill-equipped to handle. There were three main issues with the British defensive doctrine and their situation at this point in the war. Keep in mind that they had not been seriously challenged by the Germans in an offensive manner since like 1914. The first issue was that while the British command had introduced the concept of a defense in depth in late 1917, they had not mandated it be implemented by all armies. This meant that the commanders at the army corps and division level had a lot of autonomy when it came to what kind of defenses they favored and how they carried out those defenses. This meant that in some areas, there was a reasonably well-formed defense in depth, while in others, they were using more antiquated defensive systems that placed too much emphasis on holding the front line. This type of confusion would result in units who were relatively close together in the line handling the German attacks differently, causing their coherent line to be mixed up and become disorganized. The second issue was that there had not been enough time or manpower to properly dig and prepare defensive positions in depth, even where the generals had attempted to do so. This was especially true for the British 5th Army, who had only relatively recently taken over their area of the front from the French, giving them a lengthy list of improvements to do while dealing with the fact that they were overextended and critically short of men. The third major issue was that Haig and the other British leaders were simply too overconfident in their armies and in their ability to stop the Germans when they launched an attack. This led to statements by Haig to the effect of him being concerned that if the British line appeared to be too strong, the Germans would not attack. Now, of course, we know from our discussion of the German doctrine last episode that these attacks would initially be successful, but they would run out of steam. And once they did, the British, French, and Americans recovered, and it was once again time for them to attack. Once the British were back on the offensive, they seemed to be fighting an almost entirely different war. One example of this is the attack at Hamel on July 4th, an attack led by the Australians with some Americans in support. During this attack, a precursor of the combined arms approach that would typify World War II battles and would influence 20th century military thinking, General Rawlinson tried to utilize all of the mechanical advantages that his troops possessed. This meant that a large number of tanks, 60 in total, were joined by low-flying ground attack aircraft in their movements forward. Before the attack, instead of a lengthy artillery barrage, which forfeited any surprise, there was just a short four-minute bombardment, then the artillery changed over to mounting a creeping barrage to protect the attack while mixing in 10% smoke shells to provide some cover. All of this was designed not just to produce results, but also conserve manpower in the process, and it would be quite successful at both. The last major British attack of 1918 was supposed to be at Amiens in early August 1918. It would be here that the combined Australian and Canadian forces, considered to be the premier formations of the British army, would fight side by side for the first time. They would use a scaled-up version of what had happened at Hamel. There would be no lengthy bombardment, just a short one right before the attack began. For the Canadians, they would also use some of the tactics that we discussed this year when discussing the attack at Vimy Ridge. They moved their troops into the line the previous day to give them time to familiarize themselves with the ground over which they would be attacking. They also used knowledge gained from Passchendaele for how fast a creeping barrage should go forward, a uh, 100 yards in 8 minutes for the record. Then they took advantage of changes in the makeup of, artillery units in ni- in, of infantry units in 1918, with units becoming more self-reliant with their own machine guns and units of engineers, all of which were designed to give units more firepower. The attack then succeeded so well that instead of calling off the attack after the initial stages were over, the British just kept attacking, and they would not truly stop until the war was over. This is sort of where our discussion ends, a British doctrine during the war. They had sort of peaked. There were still three months of fighting, but it would devolve into surprise artillery barrages followed by infantry assaults. The British were fighting a foe that, if not defeated, now found it impossible to regain the initiative. Same thing that the Germans were on the ropes, the British refused to slow down, refused to rest, which would have allowed the Germans to catch a breath, and it would have also allowed the British to plan and equip their army for another attack like at Amiens. Instead of waiting, though, they just kept pushing forward while the Germans fell back. It would be a bloody 100 days, but the war would be over on the other side of it. It would cost the British a lot of casualties in those last hundred days, but at the end of it, for even for all of their mistakes, of which there were many over the course of the war, the British came out of the war as the best fighting army in Europe. They had experimented with and had at least some mastery over combined armed tactics, they had created and produced some reasonably serviceable tanks, and while they had lost some battles and lost many men in the process, they had won the war. And I guess that's all that matters.